and welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and I'm excited to bring you another episode of the podcast today. First, though, I want to let everyone know about amazing events happening in February. There are so many things happening this month. I am super excited. First up, Saturday, February 4th will be the 44th annual Annie Awards. You get to see all of your animation heroes winning awards, giving lovely speeches. There's a buffet. You get a chance to talk with people. It's great. If you don't get an opportunity to go, you can still check it out by visiting the Annie Awards website because they will be streaming the award show live. So make sure to check that out. And then later this month, Fan Alley will be hosting their second annual Ground Zero Animation Expo, February 18th and 19th. Now, this event is very cool indeed. Had the opportunity to go last year. This year, it's even bigger and better. Friend of the show, Chris Wimberly, the host of the Animation Network podcast, will be there, along with Peter Paul, storyboard artist extraordinaire, along with several crew members from the Loud House. And today's guest, Morgan Gill, we'll get into that later, but she will be teaching a workshop. So make sure to get your tickets now. And along with that, they are offering an opportunity for you to win free tickets to the next weekend's event. That will be the Animation Network's second mixer happening at 7 o'clock on Saturday, February 25th. If you order your tickets for Fan Alley, you're going to be entered into a drawing to get a free ticket to the Tan Mixer. So make sure to sign up for that. But even if you don't get a free ticket, you should still go. It's an opportunity for you to meet professionals in the industry, people who want to get into the industry. It's a lot of fun. Chris and Jeff and Cassie and TR are amazing, awesome people. You'll just want to have an opportunity to talk with them. It is going to be a very good time. So I'll have links for all of those events in the show notes that you can check them out and purchase your tickets. And also, speaking of events, make sure to look into Nickelodeon's writing program and artist program. These are open to everyone. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be a student. If you have a portfolio, if you have a spec script of a currently running television show, you really need to apply. I think I might have mentioned this last episode, but several people on our writing staff at the Loud House made it through because of the Nickelodeon writing program. And as you heard from last week, Mallory Carlson got her start at Nickelodeon through the artist program, and she's not the only one. So I highly recommend checking out both of those programs. And again, I will leave links for that in the show notes. And that leads me to today's guest, Morgan Gill. Morgan has done it all. She has done storyboarding, character design, illustration, animation. She's currently teaching at Laguna College of Art and Design. She had a Kickstarter campaign last year that was successfully funded. Like I said, she's going to be having a workshop at Fan Alley. The woman's on fire. She was an amazing guest. She's a really cool person. And I know that all of you are going to love hearing what she has to say today. So without further ado, I present episode 37, Interview with Morgan Gill. Yeah, so first off, uh, where are you from, Morgan? 
Uh, I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where I grew up. And I didn't move down to Orange County until I was actually ready to go to art school when I was, I think, 20. Excellent. And when, while you were, you know, when you were growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, what were some of your influences? What were some of your, you know, favorite movies or books or comics that you felt feel like really influenced you? Oh, I would say probably the majority of it would have been Disney. I grew up in a household where Disney movies and going to Disneyland and Disney anything was a really big deal. So when I was growing up and I started drawing and I started getting a lot of encouragement from my family to do so and to keep it up, I was pulling a lot of my inspiration from Disney. And I think that really moved me towards, okay, well, I think I want to go into animation. Did you have any particular favorite Disney movies or Disney shows? Beauty and the Beast was probably my favorite. What was that one your favorite? I think it's because it came out when I was around four or five. And for some reason, that one just really stuck in my mind as, I don't know, there was something about it that I just really liked as a kid. I was really interested in all of the anthropomorphized objects, specifically Mrs. Potts and Chip. And I don't know, that one just really stuck around for a long time. And I liked other ones as well. Like I really liked Aladdin and a lot of the movies that were coming around during the the Renaissance period of Disney animation. But that one in particular is probably hands down my favorite from when I was growing up. Excellent. So then fast forward, you know, you're influenced by Disney and you have support from your family, you're drawing all the time. How did you decide to go to Laguna College of Art and Design? So originally, when I started looking to go to an art school, the only school that I was really hearing about for animation was CalArts. And I had graduated from high school, and I went into community college because my art school or my um, high school at the time didn't really have an arts program. And I knew that I needed to go and get some fundamentals under my belt before I could actually apply to an art school. So went to community college, took a bunch of classes, and all I was hearing about from my instructors was CalArts. So I started doing a lot of research on CalArts, and I went down and took a tour, and I prepped a portfolio, and I was getting ready. And then I found out that they had something called the, I think it was called the International Portfolio Review Day. And there was one year where it was at CalArts and I went and I took my portfolio and they said I needed more time to keep drawing and to come back. And so I did. And the next year, the International Portfolio Review Day happened to be at Laguna College of Art and Design. And so when I went down there to show my portfolio, I was specifically going to go show CalArts and... Pretty much, I fell in love with the campus. I fell in love with the staff. I talked to a bunch of students who were there, and I found out about their animation program, and I decided to apply there as well. And the second or third time that I applied to get into art school, I think I was waitlisted for CalArts, but I wasn't even super concerned about it because I had pretty much determined that I got in at LCAD, and that's where I wanted to go. Yeah, and I've heard nothing but amazing things from LCAD, actually. I had a chance to interview Someone else who went to that school earlier in the year, and he just raved about it, so I've just heard really good things about the school. Yeah, it felt like kind of a hidden gem, and around the time that I got there, the animation program was getting shaken up again. They were making a transition to another head of the department, and he was coming in and changing the way that the program was laid out. So even from the time that I started and to the time that I left, it was a completely different program, and if you go back there now, it's completely different focus. They've moved away from people being able to focus on just storyboarding or just visual development, and everybody has to go through the process of working on a film, which 
ultimately, I think is really beneficial for the students because they get an opportunity to learn about all different areas of the pipeline and understanding that animation itself is not a solo, for the most part, is not a solo art form. It is collaborative. That's wonderful. And I, I like that they have to make a film. My school is the same way, at least for um, the graduate students. If you're mm-hmm. a TV animation student, you have to make a film. And I know that college is the same way you have to make a film. And I agree. I think that's just a really good idea because then you just know this is how it's done. Yeah. And I mean, when I had to do mine, I had to do all of the character design. I had to do all the layout, the backgrounds, the storyboarding, the rough animation, and then taking it to clean up. And right around the time that I was entering my senior year, I had actually come there to the program for visual development. And the year before they had canceled that and said, everybody from here on out has to make a film. So I was a little blindsided because I had, you know, I was going in there with no intention of actually making a film, but I ended up really enjoying it, and I learned a lot from it. Now the students actually have to take their films to, I think, full cleanup, and then uh, a lot of them stay behind uh, another semester to take all of their films to color, which is really amazing. That's really good. So what was your student film about? Oh my gosh. Mine was about a little tiny tiger named Dante. And he's basically trying to live in human society, going into a coffee shop, just wants his coffee. But basically everybody sees him and, you know, oh, it's just a tiny little tiger. So they kind of push him around and they cut him in line and they very much disrespect him, completely ignoring the fact that he is basically this wild tiger. And so that's a little bit about what the film was about. It was really short. And unfortunately, I didn't finish it 100%. And I was one of the few students, or I was the last student they allowed to finish half of their film before leaving, just because of the fact that they had switched the programs so late in my my career at LCAD. So I got half of the film done before I left. And unfortunately, there was some flooding and all of my drawings got destroyed right after finals. So (laughs) there's no going back to that now. Oh, that's awful. Was it flooding at the school? or? Yeah, actually, it it was really strange. I had finished up in December. I went home for the Christmas holiday. And I think Christmas Eve, I got a phone call from one of the other students, and I guess there had been some major rainfall uh, in Laguna Beach, and the um, most of Laguna Beach had flooded all the way up to where the senior studios were, and all of my drawings were on the floor in a box because I had not anticipated there being any flooding, and when I got back to it, they were pretty much destroyed. So... That pretty much closed the door for me working and finishing my senior film, but I still think about it often, and I'd kind of like to go back to revisit it, but right now I have so many other projects, but I still learned a lot from it, and it's really helped me move forward in my career. I'm sorry to hear about your film. That's That, that has to be one of the most bizarre things ever about You know, you know <laughs> it really was, but I'm just happy that it happened two days after after finishing up my senior year, because if it had happened beforehand, I would have had to repeat. So it was kind of a disaster, but a blessing in disguise, because I mean, it was so close to being a disaster that would have uh, really altered my education, and I'd have to have stayed for another year. So it is what it is. Things happen for a reason. So luckily, most of the students who had work destroyed had just finished up their senior year, so it didn't affect them for their next semester or anything. But yeah, it was a pretty crazy outcome. You have a great attitude, and I hope everyone listening just takes that same attitude. I would be very upset. I I really like your attitude about this, you know, 
I graduated, I got it done, I can always come back. Oh yeah, well believe me, like at the at the time it was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to me in my entire life, but ultimately I still had the film itself. I just didn't have the raw drawings anymore. I couldn't go back and make any timing edits, nothing like that. But I had enough of my film to show to potential employers where it actually didn't it didn't hurt me all that much. I ended up getting a job almost immediately out of school based on the work that I had done for my senior film. Oh, very good. And what was your first professional gig? My first one was for a mobile game studio called Super Play Games, and they were located just outside of Laguna Beach in a city called Irvine. And I was hired to do character animation and visual effects for uh, mobile games. And then basically, I was their first outside hire because it was just a small group of guys who had left Blizzard Entertainment to start their own studio. And ultimately, by the end of my time working there, I ended up doing everything from visual effects, animation to character animation, layout, storyboarding, character design, and even art lead. So I ended up learning an awful lot while working there. And it opened up a lot of doors for when I actually finished my time at Superplay and I moved on to other studios for my career. That's amazing. And how did you find out about that studio since it was so small and it was just a handful of people? You know, you always hear people say that it's not always about talent or it's not just your talent that gets you places. It's sometimes the people that you know. This was definitely one of those situations. There was an instructor at LCAD who had seen me give a presentation about my senior film and Pretty much he contacted me right after I graduated and said, hey, you know, I, I teach part-time at LCAD, but I've started a studio with this group of guys and we're looking for another artist. I really like what it is that you're doing and the, the style that you have, and I think it would work well for our project. Would you like to come in and do an art test? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, because the moment that I graduated, I started applying at like Starbucks, just anything to pay the bills. And so I was working at Starbucks immediately after school. Two months later, I had this gig and I was so thankful for it. That is really good. And I also commend you for, you know, just getting out there immediately because I, you know, I think sometimes just from talking to people when I was in school and outside of school, sometimes there's a lag. And, mm -hmm. okay, I've graduated. I think I'll just kind of sit for a little while and recuperate. And I get that because, you know, you've worked on your thesis or your film or whatnot. But I feel like the people that just hit the ground running tend to do a little bit better either getting an art job or just getting something because they're just really willing to get out there. Yeah, I definitely felt the urge to just kind of sit around and take a couple of weeks or even a couple of months off from work. But unfortunately, I just didn't have the luxury of that. My family had supported me and helped me throughout school. I had all these loans that I had to start paying off. And I knew that if I didn't get out there and get them quickly, then all of the other students who had who were taking a break were also going to be looking at the same time. So I felt that it was important to move immediately while everybody else was taking a couple months off. And I think that also helped play into my ability to get something rather quickly because I wasn't the only student that was being looked at for this position. That is really good that you hit the ground running with that. And I want to go back just a little bit because I saw in your profile that you also had the opportunity to intern over at Cartoon Network. And I wanted to talk about what that experience was like for you and how you were able to get the internship. Oh, yeah. So I think that was the summer of my junior year. And I was just about to start my senior film. And I did an internship. And when I went in, I originally was being interviewed for 
think, three different shows. So that was really nerve-wracking because I ended up going to Cartoon Network for the first time, and I'm all dressed up trying to look professional. And I went from one interview to the next. And you go into these, and everybody's really nice, but you walk out knowing that they're seeing another student right after you, and you just don't know if you got anything. I was fortunate because I was actually offered a position on all three shows, so I was able to choose which one I wanted to do. And I went with Gendy Tartakovsky's last show at Cartoon Network, which was Symbionic Titan. One of the things that I don't think a lot of students realize when they start going into looking for internships, especially at studios that require you to be in the guild in order to do any actual artistic work, is that when you get in there, you're not actually allowed to contribute artistically. They can bring you in and you can do like little art tests or you can sit in and do your own little storyboarding and practice, but they won't actually use any of your work. So most of the people that I interned with and I watched intern on other shows were there for production assistant. And Basically, you got to learn about the process from the production assistant's point of view. How do these shows get made? What the general pipeline is, which was really eye-opening and really enlightening. And I learned so much while interning there. But another thing that you were allowed to do at Cartoon Network was you could actually do a story pitch. So during your internship, you can spend a little bit of time doing character designs, layouts, and storyboards. And at the very, very end, they would call in a bunch of like the heads of the studios, different artists, directors, and they'd bring them into a room and you'd get to stand up in front and pitch your story idea. Now, Cartoon Network doesn't own those, isn't going to make them or anything. It's just to give you an opportunity to pitch in front of an audience of people who can give you honest feedback and critique. So at Cartoon Network, on most of the shows, that was not a requirement. You could do it if you wanted to. However, the show that I landed on, the producer was like, you are going to do it, and you're going to work with me, you're going to pitch me your ideas, and I want a progress report every other week on your on your story pitch. So I was pretty shy in school. I did not want to do this, but I really wanted to be on this show. And so that was another beneficial thing that I got out of it is I was forced into an uncomfortable situation that generally I would have shied away from. Like if my producer hadn't said, hey, you need to do this, I would have not done it. And I think that's pretty important for other students at this point when they start looking at internships is take every opportunity you have to get into an uncomfortable situation with your own art and creativity because you're going to end up walking away with a lot more knowledge and understanding about the pipeline just in general. And I was really, really thankful for that opportunity. That is amazing. I'm glad that your producer had you do that too, because that's a really important skill. Yeah, and it was really terrifying. I remember they tried to space them out over a couple of days because a lot of students from the other shows decided that they were going to do it. And I think in total, maybe 10 people did pitches for the summer intern program. And I think there might have been 24 students in general. So they tried to space them out over a couple of days. And I remember being put into a group with two other interns who were going to pitch. And we were just so sick. We were so ill walking in. We were just so nervous and like none of us ate, none of us drank. Um, We all took aspirin before going in just because we were so, we were a mess because you walk in and you know that Gandhi Tartakovsky is going to be in there and some of the other heads of the shows and, and you have to present your work and not fall flat on your face and yeah, (laughs) but it was really worth it. Good for you. Uh-huh. I don't know how many people would be willing to do that. So that that's really cool. 
I don't think I was willing. <laughs> I remember still being really reluctant. I was like, why? Why? But it was worth it. So I highly recommend it for any student who is looking for internships. Cartoon Network is a really great place to go because that, that opportunity is there. I know that other studios do it as well. I'm not sure about Nickelodeon, but if they do it, yeah, that's definitely an opportunity worth taking. Even if you end up being a little sick afterwards or beforehand, it'll be all right. And I'm curious too, since, you know, you had to pitch while you're at Cartoon Network and since that got you out of, you know, your comfort zone and helped you to become less shy, have those skills translated into helping you as an instructor now that you're um, teaching over at Laguna College? Oh, yeah. I would say that was probably one of the biggest confidence boosts and builders that I had through my time at LCAD. I don't know... If it, I would say that it has helped in my ability to instruct the students, like as far as public speaking. I, that's what you're referring to, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe indirectly, because ultimately it built my confidence. And then when I started leaving school and started doing all of these jobs, my confidence just got more and more bolstered. And I started taking charge more. And I think it's at this point, it's really easy to get up in front of the students and talk to them about these sorts of things, because I want to make sure that they're as prepared as they possibly can be. Because ultimately, when I left school, I knew absolutely nothing about what to expect. You know, everybody leaves expecting, oh, I'm going to go get my first job at Disney or Pixar. And, you know, they have these really wild aspirations. But ultimately, you have to get out and get work. You need to show that you're a dependable and reliable artist. And you don't always need to be looking at the bigger studios. Look at the smaller things and build your network, you know? So I want to make sure that when I'm teaching my students, I come across as confident as I can and just trying to give them all the information I wish I had had. Besides thinking that they're all going to get jobs at Disney and Pixar, what are some of the other misconceptions that you found that students often have when they're preparing to go into the workforce? Definitely number one is thinking only about the big names and the big projects. Number two would probably be salary and having misconceptions about what their value is. One of my biggest pet peeves is watching students or even, you know, professionals going out and undercutting their prices just to get a job. And so that's one of the things that I, I heavily emphasize in my class is just knowing your value. Ultimately, you have to look at like, how much debt am I in? What is my skill set worth? Why is it that people feel like they can't value my artwork as much as they should? Is it because of the way that our society devalues artists and, you know, they need to be the stopping point there and educating other people as to why it is that they're worth that price for that amount of time and that amount of work. And even still, like I, I see a lot of people leaving school and taking jobs where they're being paid ultimately $8 an hour. And I go, hey, just so you know, I was making nine fifty at Starbucks and I didn't have to, you know, cater to somebody else's whims artistically. I just made coffee. So you are definitely worth more than that. Your time and your talent is worth more than that. You went to school for this and you have you have an education and a degree. Now's the time to put value into your artwork. That is great. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear you're instilling that in people because that's something that at my school, I was fortunate in that we had a class where we, we talked about that and our teacher talked about, you know, this is for a beginner, you know, this is the range you should be looking at. That's right. realistic. 
And it was really eye-opening to me because at the time I didn't realize that people in animation made that much. And I thought, oh, this is great. And I remember when I told my parents, I could tell just from the sound of their voice that they immediately thought, oh, our child's not going to starve. Animation was a good choice after all. Thank you. It was just a, a wave of relief. But you're right. A lot of people have... They have no idea. And I often, I mean, I see a lot of different projects on the internet a lot of times, especially on a lot of freelancing websites where they say, oh, I want, you know, this animated short that's five minutes, you know, done in full color and I'll pay $200. And I think you have no idea how much you should be paying people. That's, that's not even close. Yeah. And, you know, I do feel like it's our responsibility to educate those individuals. Ultimately, it's going to be very hard to sway their opinion because they only have a certain amount of money and they have something that they want. But if you only have $200 and that's the amount of work that that you're wanting, then you should probably put that into buying a book and learning how to animate yourself (laughs) because... Ultimately, that's not right for people to be earning so little for so much. And yeah, my class is called Professional Studies, and we cover everything from resumes and business cards to how to get into the guild, how to price yourself, how to negotiate, and then the big nasty, which is how to file for unemployment, because ultimately you have to prepare for your your most nervous day, which is graduation, to the best day, which is when you get your first job, to the worst day is when you lose it, and everything in between. And so... That's pretty much what I cover in my class right now at LCAD. That's excellent. And speaking of resumes and business cards and putting yourself out there, you have a fantastic web presence. I mean, you're on Instagram and Tumblr and LinkedIn, and you have a website and you have a blog, and you do this very well. And a lot of artists do that well, and a lot of artists don't and barely have anything. So, how did you develop your presence online so that? you know, accurately reflected the type of art that you like to do? Well, I've only started doing that within the last two years. LinkedIn, I've had pretty much from the time that I left school. I built a website just so whenever I did lose a job, I could easily put fresh work on and then send it out to possible employers. But it's only been within the last two years that I've really gotten into Tumblr, Instagram, and Twitter, and really trying to promote my artwork because I made a, a, a goal for myself where two years ago, I was like, okay, I'm going to start doing all of these conventions like CTN, WonderCon, maybe Comic-Con if I can ever get into that, and really promoting my artwork because ultimately, if people don't know what it is that you can do, then they don't know to offer you jobs. And I started seeing that Once I finished up conventions, within the next week, I was getting job offers for contract freelance and some even full-time positions that were like, okay, we want to hire you away from where you are. Like, oh, so this is really beneficial because this is a networking opportunity. You go to these conventions, you put your artwork out there, people get to see, take your business card, walk away, and then you know, it does have an opportunity to open doors. And when I started deciding to do that, I was like, okay, I really do need to have an Instagram so I can build up my followership and tell people where I'm going to be and where they can find my most recent artwork. I need to do that on Twitter and Tumblr as well. And only within the last couple of months, I started a YouTube channel where I can actually start doing time-lapse videos of me working. I'm also going to be doing tutorials and product reviews because I get so many questions about what type of pens I'm using, paper, paint, and how do you do this? How do you do that? And so uh, I decided, okay, that's the next area for me to get into now is YouTube. So I can start answering those questions and putting them online where people can actually go and refer them, share the video, and then ask other questions for future videos. 
that is wonderful and really cool that you're willing to answer people's questions about that and to show them this is how I do what I do and these are the materials that you need in order to do those things. So uh, one of the things that makes it so easy at this point is that I primarily post now to Instagram and then it populates out all the other ones, which is really convenient. So everything is getting the same, pretty much the same artwork every single time. And then one of the things that I tell my students in the class is a lot of people, specifically with Instagram, don't like to see a lot of personal if they're really interested in your artwork. So posting a couple drawings and then like pictures of your food or where you're vacationing, like you're less likely to maintain a followership because people will start disengaging from your your feed just because they're wanting to see your artwork. And then if you don't post artwork and you're posting everything else, they're more likely to unfollow you. Or at least that has been something that I've definitely noticed with my Instagram feed and, and even Twitter to an extent is so when you're trying to build your brand and trying to promote your artwork, kind of separating your personal life a little bit, not too much because people still want to know about you and what is going on in your day to day life. But you know, not everybody needs to see what you're eating for breakfast or, you know, your cat. And that's really hard because that's the type of stuff that I had to stop posting <laughs> my cat photos. <laughs> things like that. So I think that's also pretty important. And I know people that they have separate accounts too. So they'll have their art account and they'll have, and if you're really curious about yeah. the rest of what's going on in my life, my vacation photos, my cat photos, my food photos, you can also follow this. So <laughs> yeah, I'm about to get one too. <laughs> that's great. It's like, you can still post what you want to post. It'll just be over there and everyone interested can check that out too. Exactly. Awesome. And you mentioned something very interesting that I want to go back to, which was getting into Comic-Con. And I don't know how many people out there realize just what the process is like to actually get to exhibit at conventions. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Comic-Con is, it's a completely different beast. So I'll, I'll circle back around to that one. First of all, getting into some of these other conventions, so many people are wanting to do that now that it's starting to get more and more difficult to get your foot in the door. I was very lucky because I decided two and a half years ago that I was going to apply for WonderCon. And since then, it's become so difficult to get in. I think I heard the other day that they had 300 spots in Artist Alley and they had 500 applications. Wow. And the people who have applied and been there previously have priority over some everybody else. So let's say only 20 people decide not to return for the next year, meaning they only have 20 other spots. And now you're competing with 200 other people to try to get those. So it can be very difficult getting your foot in the door. But if that's something that you're really interested in doing... Definitely start looking at the websites for those conventions six to eight months ahead of time. WonderCon, I think, just emailed out basically confirmation for those who got in for this next year. It is at the very end of March. So that's, you know, a little over three months away. But other conventions like Comic-Con, you have to apply pretty much on site or within the next week or two after the convention because they open it up pretty early. So, yeah, it's mostly getting in there putting in an application if they have it available, if not getting on the mailing list and just constantly watching it like a hawk. Because when they open up, whether it's WonderCon, Anime Expo, Fanime, DesignerCon, CTN, they start going really, really quickly. And at a lot of conventions, they're not juried or anything like that. So it's pretty much a first come first serve basis. Now there are some exceptions to that, like Comic-Con is one where certain sections you have to apply and then you, your portfolio gets critiqued. 
And CTN is very much the same way. But then, you know, like Anime Expo, Fanime, even WonderCon and, and some of these other comic conventions, again, it's first come, first serve. That is good to know. So we can get on that, listeners. And yeah. also speaking of that, how did you decide what to sell? Because that's something that I remember talking with a couple of friends where they're like, what do I sell? Do I do plushes? Do I do postcards? Like, how did you rein in from all the different types of things you could sell to figure out this is what I'm going to specialize in? The one thing that I wanted to sell going in my first time, and it's still the focus every single convention for me, is the sketchbook. The sketchbook is all of my artwork from the previous year, and it's basically a tiny portfolio. And you sell them at a reasonable price, $10 or $15. I think mine, are, uh, mine right now are 15 And people buy them, and they, they walk away with a collection of your artwork to demonstrate your style, your expertise, your your range. And when I sell the sketchbooks, that's where I get more job offers because people say, hey, I bought your sketchbook. I really like what I see on, on these select pages. We're working on a project. We need a designer for it. Would you be interested? So they're tiny little ambassadors for me. And so when I started going in, I knew that number one, 100%, I needed to have a sketchbook and anything else was bonus. One of the things that I highly recommend everybody have is prints to sell just because they're really inexpensive. You can sell them at a decent price and then, you know, you end up making a significant amount of profit. And they also help fill your table space because you definitely don't want your table to appear empty. You want it to look appealing. Think about the way that people set up displays in storefronts or grocery stores. You want to make something that's appealing, that's eye-catching, and people will walk over and look at the prints or some of the other knickknacks like keychains or bags first, and then they'll see the sketchbook, which is right in the center. And the sketchbooks are slightly smaller, so they're harder to see from a distance. But I would say when I have people come by my booth, they're coming 90% of the time to see the prints and then the other little knickknacks. And I'd say 70% of the time they leave with a sketchbook instead. Wow, that's really good. So that's cool that you had a focus and decided this is going to be the ambassador for what I am doing. Yeah. And everything else is just trying to call people over. Like I really do love acrylic cell phone charms and cosmetic bags and uh, keychains and pins and things like that. Like I really love that stuff. And I love the process of making that stuff and then receiving it. But ultimately, it all has to support the sketchbook. If I don't sell the sketchbooks, then ultimately, I, I'm i shooting myself in the foot because those are portfolios that get to go out and have all my contact information. It's where people can find me online, email me. And you know, if I don't have them, then I lose work, basically. And speaking of personal projects and sketchbooks, you recently fully funded a Kickstarter project. And I want yeah. to know if you can tell the listeners about that, because I believe this is, even though the Kickstarter has successfully been completed, they'll still be able to purchase it, right? Yes, that's right. So I'm actually really excited because I should be able to pick up all of the books here in a couple of days. And once the Kickstarters have been um like all of them have received theirs, they will be going online on my Etsy store. And they'll also be available at my next few conventions being WonderCon, possibly CTN. Um, I haven't quite figured out my entire list of conventions for this next year, but definitely at WonderCon, they will be available. And it's a collection of paintings that I worked on most uh, for the last six months. Um, 
focusing on pinup girls with really colorful, vibrant hair and tattoos, and trying to just get a, a large variety of different types of tattoos, different types of girls, different different everything, like as much variety as I could. There's even some like monster girls in there just because I love monsters so much. So uh, it was definitely a fun project. And I got about four paintings into it and people were already calling for a Kickstarter and for a book. So that gave me a lot of drive to continue working on it and get to a point where by September I could pretty much be ready to launch a Kickstarter. So it's just about to complete and I'm really excited because I want to send out everything and I hope everybody enjoys it as much as I enjoyed creating it. Now, did the decision to turn it into a Kickstarter, was that solely from your fan base saying, we want to see this as a Kickstarter, like you mentioned, or had that been something you were planning to do anyway, and then they just reinforced, yes, we really want to see this? I had a lot of people in like, wanting to have the book and wanting a higher quality book than the sketchbooks that I have previously produced, because the, the ones that I have made so far, they're very nice quality, but they're not, uh, they don't have perfect bounds, binds, or anything like that. They don't have rounded corners. This book is a what would be considered a premium style sketchbook. It has a nicer paper quality. It's got a really velvety feeling cover. It's going to have rounded corners, like all of that. And I wanted this one to be a much nicer book than the previous ones. And when I got the price tag for how much it would cost to actually produce them, I was like, oh God, I don't think I can do this myself right now. I had earlier this year self-funded a plush toy design. And so I was like, I can't self-fund two very large projects in one year. I think the only way that this is going to happen is if I go to Kickstarter. I had mentioned it to my fan base that I was considering doing a Kickstarter and the I had an overwhelming amount of support and encouragement from them. And it was a pretty easy decision to try to take it, uh, to determine that I was going to try to take it to Kickstarter and see if I could get it fully funded. If I couldn't get it fully funded, then I was going to make the book still, but in the other format. Very good. And what were some important things you learned about Kickstarter that for anybody that wants to do a similar type of project, you would recommend that they find out about? Don't do it near the end of the year. That's probably the biggest thing that I learned. I was wanting to finish it by the end of this year. I knew that much. And I was like, okay, I really want to have as many of the paintings done as possible before launching the Kickstarter. That way, it's literally amount about getting the money and being able to hand that money over to the manufacturer of the books and be done and being able to turn it around in about a month. I decided I was going to launch at the very latest in mid-September because I had looked at the statistics and it was like, as soon as it starts getting into October, November, December, if your Kickstarter is live, you're less likely to get contributions because people are starting to think about saving money for the holidays. So I launched it mid-September with it ending mid-October. It got fully funded, which was great. However, the thing that I did not take into account is that all of the money has to be spent before the end of the fiscal year. Otherwise, the taxes on it are, are pretty crazy. So that's, that's one thing that I would recommend for people is just really looking into all of the information, specifically around taxes and the best time of year to launch a Kickstarter. Because another one is you don't want to launch generally in January because people are still financially hurting from after the holidays. Other than that... I would say definitely doing your research on how much your product is going to cost 
what the rewards are going to cost, and then keeping in in mind all of the shipping costs and the taxes at the end of it. Because a lot of first-time Kickstarter people will not think about that and end up getting bitten really hard. So this was my first one. I still don't 100% know if I did it right, all said and done, but hopefully I'll know here within the next couple of months and I'll just take all of that and learn from it and apply it to the next Kickstarter that I do. Well, congratulations on your Kickstarter. Thanks. And those that don't know, Morgan had a goal of 10000 and she raised $12,004, which is very, very impressive. So congratulations on that. Thanks. And for those of you that do know about it, you'll be able to get your book soon. And I'm curious, too. I mean, you mentioned that you were, you know, doing these different drawings of tattooed ladies and people are interested. How did you decide that you even wanted to do drawings of tattooed ladies? Like, how did that even come about? A lot of it comes down to the fact that I really want a tattoo in a weird sort of way, but I also can't go in and get like a tetanus shot. <laughs> so I'm kind of living vicariously through my paintings because I'm just too chicken to go get a tattoo myself. I also, the project started because I was noticing a lot of women around LA who that who I thought were very visually striking with colorful, vibrant hair. I have bright blue hair. So I'm really drawn to to that look and having just enormous sleeve tattoos. So a lot of the women that are in the book are based off of individuals that I saw walking around LA or other you know places that I visited or even people that I saw online. And I was like, wow, I really like the way that this girl looks. I love her hair. I love you know the outfit. I'm going to use that as inspiration for my next painting. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I was painting that individual exactly. It was, I was taking what I felt was the spirit of that individual and what was interesting and applying it to the next painting. That is awesome. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the book because I know it's really, really cool. And so now, you know, we've talked about your conventions, which is awesome, and Kickstarter. So now let's talk about uh, your full-time gig, which is working at Kabam. What is that like? And what is the day-to-day like working over there? So at Kabam, I work in mobile games. It's been very interesting because my, my, a lot of my career has been jumping from mobile game studio to animation back and forth, back and forth. So right now I'm currently at a mobile game studio. Unfortunately, I can't talk about the project that I'm on because it's not announced yet. I can say that my studio has two projects, the one that I can't talk about. And the other one that we're tied with is a mobile game for the next James Cameron Avatar movie. And that's been 100% announced. So, you know, that's a thing. But I am one of their 2D artists. And right now I'm focusing mostly on UI, which is called user experience. So this is in games, what does how is the information presented to you? Like, what do the buttons look like? How do you get from one screen to the next? How do you move? How do you indicate to the player what this character does, what this ability does? So a lot of it is graphic design-esque work mixed with more traditional arting and, and such, like ability icons. Those are little tiny portraits, basically. And then I've also done everything from character design to prop design to storyboarding. So that's one of the things that I really like about working at mobile game studios is generally they're small enough where you can kind of jump around from task to task. Right now, we're pretty much done on the character design side and the storyboarding side. So I've been put onto UI for the time being. And you mentioned that you're able to go from task to task. 
And earlier you mentioned also at LCAD that they had you do everything. I know though for a lot of students, they're not always sure what they should focus on because they might get conflicting advice of, you know, you should be a general, so you should be really specific. So for those in school, what do you recommend? Do you recommend that they try to learn everything they can, or do you recommend that they try to hone in on one thing and get really good at that one thing first? I would say I wholeheartedly believe that it's really beneficial to have a well-rounded understanding and education for the field that you're going into, specifically the animation 2D people. Knowing storyboarding, knowing character design, layout, all of that, I, I think it's really helpful. What I generally recommend to my students is don't turn down a job just because it's not what you 100% want to do. Like I knew coming out of school that I wanted to do character design. That's where I wanted my focus to be. And I took a job that was having me work as a character animator and visual effects animator. Well, I got in there and I showed that I could do character design and I ended up doing character design. And getting into a studio is sometimes more important than sitting around waiting for your dream job, be that at a specific studio or a specific type of job, character design, storyboarding, anything like that. Sometimes it's better to just get in if you have the skill set in something else, because then you're there and you know when the next character design or storyboarding position comes available. So it's, I don't think it's super beneficial for students to be super picky, especially coming right out of school. But I would say within... Your first two years of getting out of school, that's when you want to start focusing and be like, okay, you know, I've been sitting here, I've been doing layout design for the last year and a half. This is ultimately not something I'm super, you know, I don't want to take my career in this direction. I really want to be a storyboard artist. At that point, buckle down, prep your portfolio and start showing it, showing it around the studio, start getting feedback and start moving in that direction. Because ultimately... The thing that I see a lot of studios wanting is people who have experience working in a studio environment just in general. And if you're waiting for that one very special, very specific job, you might be waiting a, a year, a year and a half, even two years before you get that. And you could have spent that time building up a reputation, building your network, getting studio experience. And I don't think it's very helpful to be super picky coming right out of school. What are some of your future projects? I mean, I know that Definitely working on your Kickstarter, getting all of that done. But do you have any goals for 2017 as far as other projects you want to work on or even future Kickstarter projects or anything like that? Yeah, pretty much every single year for WonderCon, I release my next sketchbook. This book that's coming out here uh, fairly soon is not considered the sketchbook. So ideally, I would like to have the the third sketchbook in my series completed for WonderCon. So that's one of my big goals for this next year. As far as other projects go, I'm probably going to be doing another collection of enamel pins and then maybe a plush toy, but I'm also going to be uh, start working on some digital paintings and just forcing myself artistically to get away from painting as much and start working more uh, digitally to just show people that I've been doing all these paintings for the last year, but that doesn't mean I forgot how to use Photoshop, that sort of thing. So I'll be working on some some work for my next book project, which might come within a year and a half or two years. Well, that is excellent. And, you know, like you mentioned before, you know, everyone out there, you can find Morgan 
over on Instagram and Twitter and Tumblr and her website. And I'll make sure to have those links in the show notes so that you can follow her and check out what she's working on and purchase her recent book, Project Pink, through Kickstarter. And Morgan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And, you know, do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the listeners out there? Specifically for students, when they're coming out of school, don't get discouraged. That's the one thing that I hear so much from my students and from other students that come up and talk to me when I'm at conventions and tabling is sometimes you see other people getting out and leaving school and getting into the industry immediately. And a lot of times that can cause other individuals who aren't having the same success to start questioning their abilities and their capabilities and whether or not they should just give up. And I would say as a parting thought, definitely don't give up. Keep working and make game plans. Make a list of things that you need to do. Talk to people and build your network. And ultimately, it won't be too terribly long in the grand scheme of things before you can actually get your foot in the door and just keep trying hard. Thank you so much. And you are living proof of that. So again, thank you, Morgan, so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and hope that you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. And that concludes today's episode. Special thanks again to Morgan for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And make sure to check the show notes to find all of her links to all of her amazing websites. And remember to sign up for her workshop. It's going to be amazing. And if you enjoyed today's interview, make sure to leave a review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And thank you to everyone who has left a positive review. I really appreciate it. And you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal button and making a donation. All of your donations help me to keep the show up and running. And again, thank you to everyone who has supported the show in that way. And make sure to support our sponsors, Amazon, Audible, Loot Crate, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. Every time you click on the banner ads on the left-hand side of the Animated Journey website, and make your regularly scheduled purchases, a little bit of money comes back to the show. So make sure to support our sponsors, because in that way, you are supporting the show as well. And if you want to see what's going on in the wonderful world of animation and with the podcast, make sure to visit the plethora of social media sites. The show is on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook, you can visit us by going to www.facebook.com slash theanimatedjourney. On Tumblr, the site is theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, you can find the show at animjourney. And if you want to see what I have been up to, you can visit my website, www.sketchysoul.com. On Tumblr, it's www.sketchysoul.tumblr.com. On Facebook, it's Facebook.com dot com slash sketchy soul and on instagram and twitter you guessed it at sketchy soul so that concludes today's episode tune in two weeks from now when i bring you another amazing guest and until then be encouraged and have a great day everybody Bye.